0: listening to Adjective New Music's podcast Lexical Tones. I'm your host Rob McClure. On this episode Adjective Composer Collective member John Sokol and I get together to discuss two of our uh, more recent works. Uh, From John we're going to hear an orchestra piece called Every of the Time and from myself a new piano piece called A Veil. Well good to see you again friend.
1: Likewise
0: so um we're we're each gonna kind of talk about our own pieces today me interviewing you you interviewing me so who do you want to start with Uh, if i had a
1: coin i'd flip it but um (laughs) why i I don't know i listened to your music on the way in so why don't we start with that
0: okay sure
1: and i'm really curious about it because um you know following the links that you sent me i think there's more to this piece than uh you know than i've listened to and i want to know all about it i want to know um this is the
0: second movement, right? Um, well, te- technically it's the, uh, so this, this piece we're talking about is called A Veil uh-huh. and um, it's for a solo piano. And I wrote it for uh, my colleague at Sujo University. Um, actually, we've, we've both moved on from Sujo University at this point, but um, his name is Lucas Wong mm-hmm. and he's a, just a fantastic pianist yeah, that we had there really well yeah um so he got this project together he's he's been going to um Malaysia and Hong Kong for several years now and doing this thing called uh the I believe it's called the WbuBC project or, okay. or, or or something like that so um he's been going and doing full concerts of all WC music um for the past five or six years I think, and this was going to be the last year he did it. He was, I think he was completing his, uh, his cycle of, of WC piano works. And he got the idea to commission um, composers to uh, write pieces that were somehow inspired by WC. The project that he put together is called Tambo de WC. And um, he commissioned uh, myself and two other composers. Mm, okay. I wondered and, if that uh, title
1: was yours or not.
0: Yeah, yeah. So that title was Lucas's, and my my piece, uh, divorced from that project, would just be called A Veil. Got it.
1: Okay. Does that have any relationship to uh, the prelude, Voile, of Debussy?
0: Uh, yeah, actually. Okay. <laughs> um, so th- there were several pieces of Debussy's that I kind of looked at and was inspired by in going ahead with my own piece. So there was that piece, there was Claire de Lune, there was, uh, the sunken cathedral and also, um, the, uh, the uh, ironically, not a, not a piano piece, uh, specifically, but the cello sonata of, of Debussy's. Yes. So, um, those, those kind of groups of pieces were, were what inspired the piece. But I think, um, D- definitely the, the title is a nod to, to WC's own, own piece of that same title. I mean, I guess you can translate that as either sales or veils right. or, you know, so, something like that. But, um, but yeah, that was definitely a nod to WC. but I also kind of had my own meaning for sure. it, I guess.
1: Sure. Um, yeah, as I was listening and hearing kind of the WC esque elements in the piece and, um, Kind of parsing out in my mind, what was Rob into or what was he looking at of (laughs) WC? I think you nailed all of the ones that came to my mind with the exception of the cello sonata, which is a a piece I love very much, um, but uh, wasn't one that came to mind as I was listening. And I'm glad that was was in there.
0: That was mostly, um, that was kind of a stipulation of uh, Lucas's because he was going to perform um, the cello sonata actually the cello sonata arranged for double bass and piano oh. because he was he was collaborating with um another one of our colleagues henry chen um who's a, who's a double bass player so they were going to do that on the concert so he wanted to have you know that piece be in connection with our pieces in some way um but I th- I think the cello sonata for me was just kind of a, a kind of a minor influence, whereas mm-hmm. the other piano preludes and and piano pieces were were more major in, in in my thinking about the piece.
1: Sure, sure. There's that startling moment about two and a half minutes in where the kind of upward gesture of that Clair de Lune comes in, and it's just kind yeah. of fragmented and broken, but insistent on its repetition. That caught my attention the very first time. And then I was like, oh, oh, there's there's more beneath the surface here. Let's listen to, you know, the finer details of, you know, the construction and Debussy's kind of chordal quintal uh, mm-hmm. language and then um, the whole tones, of course. Uh, but, but all in your, you know, filtered hands, all in your, in, in the McClure way of...
0: Uh, right, editing. right, right. So those... Um it's actually really funny that um, I was able to get those Debussy sounds because I, uh, like many of the pieces I've been writing recently, I started off with building a uh, pitch field. Um, so uh, essentially uh, how, it was, how the pitch field was built, I started with um, a pentatonic scale uh, mm-hmm. which was uh not the traditional pentatonic scale that we're used to but um the um uh, the Pelog scale from um Balinese uh gamelon uh-huh. because I was trying to I was trying to pull that one of those things as an influence of debussy because right. he you know at I forget the year but at the World's Fair at some year he heard gamelon and he was very inspired by gamelon and and you know me being a composer in Kind of that side of the world um, at the time when this was commissioned. Um, that was something that I really wanted to pull in. So the scale was the Pellog scale. So if you if if you just imagine starting on C, uh-huh. it would be uh, C D flat E flat G A flat.
1: Got it.
0: Yeah. So it's a very it's a very unique sound, and I, I really fell in love with that sound. Although I don't think you can. Feel that sound in the piece whatsoever. Mm. Um, there are very very few moments where it would actually come through. Sure, because the, what I did was I took the scale and um, then uh, kind of inverted it and used that inversion to build like another octave of the scale. Nice. So it's this it's this thing where you know you take you take your five notes and then you start the intervallic process again on the fifth note so you're building this kind of it's not really a scale it's more like a it's more like a field Mm -hmm. of pitches that run the entire uh, scale of the or the entire range of the piano so using that scale either in its original form or inversion and then kind of rotating it around the piano I was able to create this pitch field but inherent in that pitch field is a lot of whole tone, yeah, which was just kind of a happy accident. Awesome. Um, so, so like I was able to find those whole tone ideas, and uh, that I think that's the most overt way that it is connecting to Debussy, other than like the Claire Lune quote. Sure. Um, and then uh, the the next uh process or the next thing I did with this scale is something that again i've been doing quite a lot recently is um i try to find um uh harmonic shapes but harmonic shapes relative to their scale degrees so if you think about if you think about a major scale or, or sorry a major triad the scale degrees would just be 135 right yeah So, but you could take those scale degrees and then put them onto another scale and get a completely different sound. Sure. If you, for instance, if you put one, three, five on the, um, well, if you put it on the chromatic scale, you would get a a totally different sound, Yeah. you know, and if you, if you chose different scales, you would get different sounds. And this is, this is something that, um, I kind of took from, this uh, this theoretical paper I read when I was in grad school. It was by Matthew Santa, and it's called uh, the technique is called mod trans, which is to say that you you look for these scale degree shapes. Uh, it, it's used as an analysis tool, but you look for these scale degree shapes. Say like uh, you know you start off with like 014 or something, and you're taking that from the chromatic set. And you for zero one four, if you translate that into scale degrees, turns into uh one two five. You look for that, um, it's a way of you know taking a minimal amount of material and through by placing that uh scale degree shape on different scales, you get a maximum amount of actual material you're using. That's really interesting, yeah. So that was, that was the process I kind of did. I actually, um, I wrote a program in max that would help me kind of like, if I put in this, uh, this scale degree shape, it'll spit out every possibility relative to my, uh, my pitch field. That's awesome. So then I, then I had like these just pages of, uh, like basically just chords, Mm -hmm. And I would you know, sit at the piano with these pages and just try things out, circle circle the chords that that I liked, and then like drew arrows around to other, other chords that, oh, this would, like if I take this shape and then I move to this other shape, and then I can have this cool like voice leading thing happening. So it was a weird, weird process to work through, but, you know, one that I one that I've been kind of developing over the past few years, I think. And um, so that was uh, using those scale degree shapes. The The beauty of it is that you can use the same shape but get a different sound even as you're moving up the scale. Sure. So in the the part right after the kind of Claire de Lune moment uh, kind of – halfway or or whatever through the piece mm-hmm. there's this chord progression that happens and that was my kind of attempt to bring in uh planing into the music oh okay because I'm using uh, the same scale degree shape and moving up the scale, but the sounds are different. you know it's not going to be it's not like planing major triads up a scale or right, anything right. So you're not going to have that same planing sound, but it comes from that same um, that same practice of WCs.
1: Yeah, sure. I love this. Like all the beneath the surface kind of analytical uh, approaches to writing. And it's so detailed in your explanations, and it's got complex kind of webs of pitch collections to another, yet when you listen to the piece, it has this kind of organic Mm -hmm. and improvisatory feel to it. You would never really suspect that so much pre-planning or forethought, you know, to to the level that you're talking about might have gone into it. And I'm so happy to hear that it has, because, you know, clearly it's very thought out and organized.
0: Thank you. Um, It was... It was really eye-opening to me because this this piece kind of represents the culmination of a bunch of different things I've been doing for mm. you know the past four or five years, and um, it was really surprising to me when I truly stepped back and thought about it. Oh my god! I've been really <laughs> influenced by WC. Like I didn't think I was, you know, when when Lucas uh, came to me with the commission, I was like, "Oh, okay, yeah, WC. I'll 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 listen to some WC and get into it for a while." But then when I when I stepped back and like took a look at the the methods I had been using. I was like, well, wow, that that planing, but not sounding like planing. That's it. That's been in my mm. like. That's been in my tool bag for a while, and you know the, the other other little things that came out. I was like, oh my god,
1: I'm <laughs> so, so influenced by WC. <laughs> I knows? kind of wondered that too. It's, um, you know, because you were asked to participate in this project. If WC had been on your radar in any way, or you know, if you had dealt with. Um, I don't know if modeling is the right word, but if you're if you're focusing on a single composer using some techniques of that composer, how that might compare to your other work or approaches, or, and you just answered that question.
0: So, how interesting, right? And yeah, I mean it. It was never in my in my conscious uh, in my consciousness that Debussy would have been so so integral to some of the techniques I've been using like not not only in this kind of developing pitch fields and and things like that but well before that this is this has kind of been on my radar for a long time and it's just it was it was so eye-opening it was crazy
1: self-revelations
0: yeah yeah really
1: <laughs> are you a pianist I don't no, know
0: okay no not at all um I mean I my main instrument is percussion. And, you know, since I've stopped playing for however many years now, like seven or eight years, I, I don't even really claim percussion as my main instrument anymore. You know, like, like, uh, I, I, I kind of am one of those people who don't really have an instrument that they keep up with anymore. I mean, the, the, the closest would be like hand drums. And, um, I, I, when we moved into our new house, I got a really crappy drum set and I've been kind of doing stuff with that. But when I was studying in school, I was mostly like a marimba and vibraphone player. You know, okay. I, I, was, I was doing all mallet stuff. So sure. I've completely, you know, haven't, obviously to keep up with that, you need to have the instrument. I right. don't have the instrument. So, right. but I did, you know, I did take uh, some piano lessons in high school. And of course, you know, went through the undergrad regimen of piano, but uh, no, I would not consider myself a pianist at all.
1: So you got to avoid the um, the pitfall that composers who are pianists sometimes fall in, which is you know improvising and letting the fingers do the talking and here's my piece kind of thing.
0: Right, right, yeah. yeah. The
1: luxury of being away from the keyboard and saying this makes sense at a completely you know compositional and and even academic level, and I know it'll work because I've thought it out. And um, did did you work with Lucas at all in the creation of the piece as you were going through it or just kind of wrote it and give him the finished draft. And he said, great works. No problem.
0: Yeah. Kind of, kind of the latter there. Um, Lucas was, uh, while I was writing this, he was kind of traveling around the world doing different concerts. So, you know, we kept up on email and um, I, I had, you know, because I had been his colleague for four years, I, I kind of knew what he could do. Oh, okay. Um, and I had seen him give You know, just knockout performances of of Debussy, of other modern works, of you know classical works. So I knew like his skill that pretty much anything I put in front of him, it would be fine. You know, so um, so yeah, there was there was not a ton of interaction between Lucas and I, but um, you know, he (laughs) this was the. This was the quickest turnaround I've ever had for something. So I gave, I I sent him the piece in uh, December of 2017. Mm -hmm. He premiered it in, uh, where did he premiere it first? I think the world premiere was in Hong Kong, and then he took it to Malaysia, and then he was at the Florida International Piano um, Festival, and uh, that was all within a month. And then a month later, he had already recorded it and released it on an album. I was like, whoa! I mean, I have never heard it live. That's the thing, oh, you know, funny. because it's only it's only had international performances. And, um, you know, I, I obviously I wanted to give him time to uh, to perform the piece before I would, you know, kind of shop it around to other pianists. So it's all happened really, really fast. Yeah. And it, it's, it's incredible that, you know, I as a composer that you know, I get to give him this piece, and then get multiple performances, and then just an amazing recording, just like that. Yeah, I mean, that's the dream, right? That's
1: fantastic, yeah, that's luxury. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, you have to write him more music now.
0: Yeah, I think so. <laughs> <laughs> big sonatas, big concertos. Yeah, definitely. So, <clears throat> yeah, I've just been, I've just been really happy with everything that how how it has worked out with Lucas.
1: That's great, and you learned about yourself in the process. That's, I think the best thing you can ask
0: for. Yeah, absolutely. Just to just to mention it, the um the album that he released, it has a bunch of uh obviously it has a bunch of uh WC uh piano pieces on it and then it has the uh the three pieces that he commissioned um for this Tambo de WC project. And uh for th- for that piece, the uh, Tambo de WC uh, the three composers, uh, of course, were myself. I have the second movement of this three-movement three, three movement suite that he created out of our pieces. That's what the I fir- was seeing. Yeah, the first movement um, is uh, called Prologue, and it's called Water Gamelon, and that is by Ming-Chi Chan. And the third movement uh, is called Anime, and it is by uh, the composer Yao Chen, who was actually also our colleague at Suzhou University. Now
1: we'll hear Lucas Wong playing uh, A Veil by Rob McClure.
0: Let's switch to yours now. Sure. So this uh, the the piece we're going to listen to of yours is called Every of the Time, and it is for orchestra. And this is continuing uh, your composer in residence with the Boulder Symphony, correct? That's right. So
1: uh, when when did you write this? This was written last year in 2017 and premiered uh, at the end of September of last year
0: and how many, how many pieces have you written with them so far
1: this would be the fourth
0: oh my god that i mean you talk about luxury like that is a luxury to be. so i mean you're a composer in residence with the boulder symphony and how i mean is that just kind of an indefinite relationship or does is does that going to come to an end soon or what happens with that
1: i don't know that those details are available it's certainly been an ongoing relationship got it um, cool and and i don't Typically hesitate to reach out when I'm able um, to either Devin Patrick Hughes, uh, the conductor, or um, yeah, usually directly to Devin. Um, and then if there's anything that we can work out, um, he's happy to forward a schedule of the season and say, we have room on these concerts, or we only have room on this concert, that kind of thing. Um, and that was the case with every of the time. I had reached out to him, I think, in February of last year. And then um, life happened. In in the form of a new baby and uh, work and all of that. And I don't think I responded until May. So shame on me. Uh, But Devin, gracious as he is, said, we have room for like a five-minute opener on our first concert of the season. And I said, I'll take it. Uh, And so with only that information in hand, the length of about five minutes, and that it was going to be the first piece on the first concert of the season, I went running.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Oh my God. And you, their season began in what, September? How fast did you write this piece?
1: I wrote it over the summer.
0: Okay. Oh yeah. my God.
1: It, it it was a lot of, oh, I'm sorry. Mavis was born this year. Um uh, <laughs> <can you tell? laughs> I don't know. I guess it was just, just good old fashioned slacking that, uh, that caused my delay last year. Um, yeah, Mavis is only seven months old, not a year and seven. So, um, I do remember composing in the wee hours of the night as I've gotten used to doing when Uh this this type of work comes up and, uh, but it, it did take part over the summer and, uh, I think I finished in probably August or something like that. And, uh, yeah, it's kind of a blur at this point already. Yeah,
0: I bet. Oh my gosh. Now I recognize the title. Because you and I are both yeah, okay. fans, from where this title came from, but I'll let you explain it.
1: Sure, it's a quote from The Office. Um, it's the episode called "The Fundraiser," and uh, it's later in the uh, series. I forget. I think season. it's eight,
0: eight, eight season, yeah,
1: yeah, something like that. And um, the character Kevin Malone, who by that point in the show has been pegged as this kind of charming but dopey guy. Uh, <laughs> is just kind of watching as one of the other characters is not doing so well after losing his job. And he keeps showing up and uh, says he's great. Things are going fine. He's adopted like 15 sick dogs at this fundraiser and is loving it.
0: And he's writing a rock opera at the moment. (laughs) (laughs) Um,
1: So Kevin just looks around and says, you know, I forget the whole quote in its entirety, but sometimes I think the people I work with are idiots. And by sometimes, I mean all of the time. Every time. Every of the time. Something like that, you know. And it's just the the delivery is so golden comedy. And I looked at my wife when that, you know, we watched The Office on repeat, you know, every so often. And that episode came up. I said, that's my favorite line. Nothing can beat it. You know, Angela saying... In reference to jazz, why can't they just play the right notes It's a pretty close second. (laughs) (laughs) But but I love that Kevin line. And I said, no matter what my next piece of music is, that's going to be the title. So that's what happened. Um, It doesn't really have anything to do, musically speaking, with The Office or Kevin.
0: Um, Maybe a little
1: bit comedic, but uh, I did take...
0: It's just a good title. Why not, right? (laughs) Every of the time. my my favorite uh and we shared this before but my favorite uh kevin malone quote would be that when he's doing a you know a talking head interview and um he says there are two types of people in the world people with charm and people without guess which i am charm type (laughs) It's just the way he says a charm type. With that big grin of his. Yeah. You know, when he delivers,
1: it's always kind of deadpan, looking at you like, are you stupid? And then the big happy grin. I love it. Yeah. It's such yeah, I, yeah. I don't even know the actor's name, uh, but uh
0: Brian Baumgartner.
1: Brian
0: Baumgartner. Fantastic. Yeah, yeah really. Anyway. And his and you listen to interviews with him. His voice is nothing like Kevin's. Like he really has to put the voice on mm. because to get that kind of like slow growly delivery, his voice is actually much higher in real life. Oh, how funny! But yeah, I think I saw him in one other thing, like ever. It, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, uh... Well, he was in uh, he was in the the latest Ghostbusters. He just had a, like a little bit role when they were. It was like the final uh, showdown. With um, the uh, at that point, it's um, oh, the Australian actor Hemsworth. It's it's like the final showdown with that uh, with that demon that is embodying uh, was it Chris or Liam Hems- I think it's Chris Hemsworth, hmm. and um. Brian Ga- Baumgartner just kind of shows up at random. <laughs> he's just, he's in there for about 15 seconds, but it's funny. it's funny as ever. So let let's get let's get to your piece sure. because obviously it has nothing to do with the office. Right. You you, you were given you were given five minutes, you, you were told it was an opener. Yeah. And I mean, it it does not disappoint as an opener. So kind of tell us like how, you know, how were you thinking about, about this piece? What types of things were you interested in, in exploring with the orchestra that you hadn't been able to do before with this orchestra? Sure.
1: Um, you know, to be honest, I assumed it was the opener, uh, because most (laughs) commissions like this are. Yeah, that's Um, true. (laughs) And, knowing the space that the Boulder Symphony plays in, which is a, a church, it can get very boomy in there. And I forget that every single time I write something for them. Uh, so I keep telling myself I wanted to write something like quiet, soft, intimate. Just let it blossom in the space. And then, oh, yeah, this is the open air of the season. So that has to kind of go out the window this time. Yeah. Um, so I wanted something that was like immediately engaging. Um, I had this kind of running uh, caffeinated thing going on. Um, just kind of nonstop action throughout. I wanted to pack those five minutes with that, s- not as much material um, for the sake of it, but just to kind of like uh, see where it took me. And uh-huh. I I wrote about the first 45 seconds or so uh, till I got to that first arrival point point. said, oh, okay, this is the material that I'm working with. Um, you know, as I was conceiving ideas and hearing just that running 16th line in the violins. And then I knew I wanted that horn thing on top of it, but I didn't quite know how. Um, and that just kind of blossomed out of that, uh, became kind of composition as as was comfortable to me. But I always feel a little bit more relaxed when I'm writing for Boulder. I, I've written mm-hmm. uh, in the past very challenging things for them. We talked uh, a couple years ago about everything all at once um on on this podcast series uh, which is not an easy piece with a lot of meter changes and um you know complex rhythms and techniques this i felt was a little more laid back in terms of that approach um there's not so many techniques or, or dissonances i wanted to have fun with it overall um be kind of not so much a dance piece but just an upbeat piece energetic all the way from the beginning to the end
0: yeah, it de- I mean it definitely has the activity. It has that kind of fanfarish uh quality about it, especially at the beginning and then you kind of bring it back towards the end. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. It I mean it, it 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 serves it serves the uh the purpose, of course, of of the opener piece and especially the um you know, the season opener very very well. Yeah. Good. I mean, thank you. Boulder is uh it's Is it, it's not a professional orchestra, is it? It's not, no, it's community-based. I mean, that's, that's, that's pretty incredible (laughs) that, I mean, that they, that they sound that good and they're able to kind of hang with this, you know, with this modern music. And, and it does seem like they have kind of a, uh, I mean, obviously you don't hear about that many community, first of all, you don't hear about that many community orchestras. Second, you don't hear about that many community orchestras that have a relationship with a living composer. Yeah. Yeah. I and mean, that's pretty special.
1: Boulder has um, several composers in residence and most, if not all of their programs throughout the season have one new work scheduled or commissioned. Uh, so they're very, very in tune with you know keeping new music as um, a proponent and uh, their artistic scheduling, which is just fantastic. The fact that I've written for them a few times Um, I feel very privileged, but, uh, uh, you know, I see a lot of new names come in and out and and they're just so hip to being on top of like scheduling new pieces, programming new pieces. Um, And they improve every time I hear them. It's not always the same players, but they do have kind of a strong core of consistent players from uh, year to year. They improve greatly each year that I work with them, each year that I see and hear them. And that's just been a wonderful thing uh, to experience and be a part of.
0: How, how does this piece compare to, you know, the other things that you've written either for them or for just orchestra in general? Like, mm. can you can you kind of place this within your own, um, you know, collection of works for orchestra?
1: I can try. I like it a lot. Um, it's it's easy for me to write smaller duration pieces. Uh, so that was definitely a help here. Um I think it really is because of my experience with the Boulder Orchestra that I feel very comfortable writing for orchestra and committing to decisions early as a composer and you know, fleshing out ideas quickly because um, I, I just had that much experience writing for that large ensemble. I think of um, what I would consider my first orchestra piece you know, as a grad student was from 2009 called mm-hmm. A Mythology that was loosely based on creation myths across the globe um, but with also a special attention to Tolkien's um, fictional creation myth in the Silmarillion. So mm-hmm. uh, that, when I went all out and tried all, you know, the obligatory techniques that a grad student might throw into an orchestra piece. <laughs> and, um, that has never been performed. It did have the last half of it read or so. So there's some documentation and it works fine. But that was kind of like my point of departure to like, what do I need to do with an orchestra to tweak it to make things clear? um make techniques and you know combinations and colors work those kind of things uh so over over time uh, they've really been developed through uh my time with the Boulder Symphony which is which has just been great and in terms of the pieces I've written for Boulder I think uh this might be the most fluid the the transitions are uh more seamless the kind of uh, communicative and emotive effects and affection are there in the way that I want them to be. The thing that's still missing in my mind, always in my mind, is like the ending, getting that really like, you know, Mm. it's the ending. I'm going to rise to my feet because I can't contain it, you know, like a Rachmaninoff piano concerto or something. Um, But I don't want it to be a Rachmaninoff piano concerto. I want it to be in my language. I just want it to sound secure. I don't think I'm there yet, but I'm getting closer and closer.
0: But, but that, I think that's the, um, that's the, the true benefit of this relationship is that, you know, so many, so many composers don't, they don't have the opportunities to get better at something, you know, and, and that's, that's truly unfortunate. I mean, I wish that more, more orchestras were like Boulder where they, you know, they're, they're giving composers a chance to kind of practice writing for orchestra, because that's the only way you get better at anything is you just, you hone your craft through multiple attempts because like, You know, if you just put it on Sibelius or Finale and then hear it through MIDI, you're not learning anything. Mm -hmm. You know, you have to put it in real, in a real place, under real hands, with real people doing the things to truly learn anything. So I, I mean, that that to me is the is kind of the greatest gift of this uh, of this relationship is that you have that opportunity to like get better at, at writing for orchestra and try new things out. Oh, okay. That didn't work. I'm going to, I mean, I would imagine that this piece compared to all your other pieces, like you're, you've, you know, you've tried, you've tried other things and you're, you're slowly forming that list for yourself of like, okay, I know they can do that. I know that works. I tried this before. Maybe it didn't work so much either compositionally or it didn't work, you know, uh, performative, performatively. Um, so, the, I mean, I, I think that's, you know, I'm I'm envious, I have to say. <laughs>
1: well, I agree with you 100% that that experience and learning uh, curve has just been the best part. Um, but, um, yeah, I, I make that mental list and that catalog of things that work and don't. And it's the same kind of encouragement I give all my students, too. You know, you're going to write a lot of music, and you'll find things that work and don't. And, get rid of the things that don't work, whether you're conscious of it or not, and build upon the things that do. Except they're, they're going from genre to genre, you know, what might not work in a string right. quartet, and then they write a piano piece, or then, uh, you know, like some kind of woodwind thing, um, may not have the same impact as writing for the same genre, like the orchestra, over and over again, where you can really refine those techniques. We can't all have a uh, position that Mahler had where he worked his own pieces out (laughs) with his orchestra because he could Um, but you know to to have that in mind uh, is is kind of the ideal I suppose
0: yeah absolutely well uh, let's listen to it now so we're going to hear the Boulder Symphony and who was the conductor again Devin Patrick Hughes and this is Every of the Time (laughs) So uh, before we go, let's just uh, let's just remind people where they if they liked what they heard today. first of all, where can they go hear it again and find more of our music. So go ahead, John, you start.
1: Well, you can find my music at my website Jonathansocal.com or on SoundCloud. And if you're interested in further than that, you can find uh, both Rob and I among our colleagues at Adjective Composers Collective
0: and the website for that would be adjective um and you'll be able to see you know all the all the pieces that we have available through adjective and all the all the other information that uh, is on that website which is which is quite a lot it, and is it does a lot. a lot of work mm-hmm.
1: soak <laughs> it in it's worth your time
0: yeah <clears throat> and um, you can find uh more pieces and and information about me at my website which is robert i am on soundcloud i think i can't just you'll you'll be able to find it you're smart you've used a computer before um i'm on soundcloud i'm also on bandcamp um and uh i i think when soundcloud kind of felt like it was going to bite the dust i i switched everything over to Bandcamp. but it rebounded it it rebounded so uh there are multiple different places to find stuff by me i'm also on twitter at at robert w mcclure and uh the same goes for instagram at robert w mcclure so cool thanks for doing this john hey good to catch up yeah likewise Thanks for listening. As always, if you want to find out more about adjective new music or lexical tones, please go to our website, www.adjectivenewmusic.com.